0: Let's turn to John chapter one. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 34 this morning. If you have one of the calendars that Amy made up, you'll see that each Sunday it's listing the passage through the gospel of John that we'll be covering. And I'm hoping to keep on that track schedule so the calendar will, that she's printed will stay accurate at least through the month of November. <laughs> it just Can I just stay on track for four weeks? Can I just stay on track for four weeks? John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, as we look at John the Baptist and his testimony about Jesus, and then one of the most important understandings of who Jesus is with him being the Lamb of God. So starting in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John answered, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him again, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. We just need your Holy Spirit to come down now and open up our eyes and open up our ears to be able to hear and see what these words mean, to understand how they're supposed to affect us and change us in our minds and our souls and our hearts and even to the point of our bodily behaviors. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us this gift of understanding what you have to say, I specifically pray that you would only give me words to speak that are the words you want spoken and that anything that is not from you would not come out of my mouth. And we thank you that you love us so much that you would do this for us. In Jesus name, Lord, we ask it. Amen. So here we look at this passage and there's just like a lot going on, right? I mean, you know me, I tend to cover smaller pieces of passages and sections of Scripture at a time. But this is a pretty broad one. There's a lot happening here. And so there's just a lot to try and explain. And we'll do what we can here with what we've got to work with in terms of time. And then John explains his purpose here, starting in verses 19 through 23, of why he is here. Why is this crazy fool standing out in the desert wearing a camel skin, eating bugs, and baptizing people in a river. What is going on here? This is not normal behavior for a dignified minister of the Jewish faith. And it starts to raise questions. These men from Jerusalem are come to asking John, who is he and what's he doing here? They have a basic problem. They have no shortage of crazy men running around dressed like Elijah acting like they speak for God. And some of these individuals that they have encountered have mental health issues, let's just say. And so they're looking at John the Baptist and going, is he for real? Or is he one of those guys that is crazy and just you have to ignore him? And at first, their response is to kind of ignore John the Baptist But then there's this problem that develops that they can't ignore. They literally cannot ignore it, even if they want to. And that's that crowds are coming to hear this man speak. People are coming out into this wilderness area that's not a very fun place to travel through just to hear what this man is saying. And then if that wasn't bad enough that he's drawing these big crowds, they're actually believing him and they're getting into the river and getting baptized. And you say, okay, so what's the big deal with that? Well, the, the problem was in that day, a physical baptism was like a sign of commitment to what they've heard. Very similar to what we do with baptism today, but slightly different. And it tends to create a very significant, a person who's gone through a very significant Experience and changing in their mind and their heart and their soul to the point that they now really want to obey God and do what is right in His eyes, which is mostly okay. But if you have some guy who's running around like a crazy fool, drawing a big crowd of the desert, and you're one of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Levites and the priests, you start to get nervous because those are the guys that cause Rome to get involved. They're the guys that kind of create trouble and cause trouble and usually end up causing a military response from the Romans. And so they come to John to find out who is this radical. They want to know who he is and what he's about before the Romans come asking them, who is this guy and what is he about? And so they go to John, just find out what's this going on. I mean, As I mentioned earlier, he's just not the first time some guy is dressed like Elijah out in the wild doing stuff. And they're like, okay, who is this guy? We got to go find out who he is. Right? And so they want to know, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? I mean, the first one makes sense to us, right? Are you the Messiah? Right? Because there was no small number of individuals who would show up over Jewish history claiming to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And they weren't. And so that question seems to be pretty obvious to us. But then the part about Elijah and the prophet is kind of confusing. And it causes other questions. And so they ask ask John, the Baptist, who are you? And are you this guy? Are you the Christ? And he makes it clear that he is not. In fact, John the apostle, writing these words a good 60 years after they happened, goes into real effort to make it crystal clear to his readers that John the Baptist openly stated he was not the Messiah. And one of the reasons I think John does this is because John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus is so crucial and critical to the early establishment of who Jesus is. Ultimately, Jesus' words and his actions are the final determiner of who he really is. But John the Baptist in the very early stages of Christ being revealed, John's testimony is important for that establishment of Jesus. And John openly says that he's not. And the Apostle John wants to make everyone understand clearly that John gets who he really is. And this is who he is, the one who is making a way. But we kind of get ahead of ourselves. Before we can step to that part about who he is, we have to continue dealing with the questions of who he is not. And the one that's kind of confusing is this one about, are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. But how can John the Baptist not be Elijah when Jesus said he was Elijah after his transfiguration and coming down the mountain with Peter and James and John? How can he not be the Elijah if Jesus says he is the Elijah? Well, the first step in understanding this is when Jesus told Peter, James, and John that John the Baptist was the Elijah promised in Scripture, he was redefining who that person was. There was a problem that developed in Jewish tradition and rabbinic understandings of Elijah and his return just before the Messiah comes. The first problem was there was no small number of rabbis and Jewish teachers who believed that literally Elijah was coming back. If you remember, Elijah was taken up on the chair in a whirlwind up into the sky. So technically, he never died. In their mind, Elijah is still very much alive like you and I are. And so they're literally expecting him to suddenly come down from heaven and show up saying, I am Elijah, and here are the things that are going to happen. The other side of this was there were individuals who thought that the Elijah to come back wouldn't necessarily necessarily be the literal Elijah from the book of first and second Kings, but that instead it was someone like Elijah. However, this Elijah figure has gotten he has the the person promised in Scripture has been morphed into something he's not. Remember, they're sitting there waiting for the Messiah to come. Right? And so they have all these prophecies they're looking at in the Old Testament of what it will look like and what it will be and who the Messiah will be and who he will not be. And this Elijah-type person promised in the Scriptures Takes on a persona and an idea that is not at all the one meant by the scriptures. But nonetheless, in their attempts to try and understand and predict what this Elijah will be like when he shows up, they take it a little further than it should. And one of them is that this Elijah-like figure will be able to perform miracles just like the one in the Old Testament. If you remember Elijah of the Old Testament raised the dead either he or Elisha made an axe head float I think it was Elisha he called down a bear to attack a bunch of loudmouth teenagers who were harassing him and the bear showed up and ate them This was a guy who who had exceptional miracles as part of his life ministry here on this earth. And so as a result, rabbis and teachers had come to the conclusion that when this Elijah-type figure shows up, he will have these same miraculous powers that the Elijah of the Old Testament did. that's not an unreasonable conclusion. I mean, you can kind of sympathetically see how they get there. But unfortunately, they were wrong. And in this is an important warning for us. When we look in the book of Revelation and we look at end times, we stand in the same place they stood before Jesus shows up. And that you're looking at these promises, these predictions in scripture of what it will be like when Jesus comes back. And we see these types of figures alluded to in the prophecies of Jesus's return. And in the attempt to try and explain and Understand what this person will look like, we run the risk of making the same mistake they did with Elijah, in that we add to this and turn him into somebody that's not really there. And so we have to be very careful not to make this same mistake when we look at end time figures and what they will be like. We have to be just cautious not to make that same mistake. Then they ask him, Are you the prophet? And he answers, no, there in verse 21. And like, okay, so what's this prophet character they're talking about? Like, I understand, are you the Christ? I understand, are you the Elijah? But the prophet, what is that? What's up with this? Well, the reference to, are you the prophet? Not just a prophet, but the prophet goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where Moses is promising a prophet like himself, someone who could suspend or even change the Mosaic commandments. Moses promises a prophet like himself. Rabbis and teachers of the law had moved to the place where they would say that this new prophet, this great prophet, could even make changes to the Mosaic covenant when he comes. So if we read this in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, verses 15 through 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And you can see from the end of verse eighteen how rabbis and Jewish teachers would get to this idea that the prophet, when he shows up, can actually suspend or change the Mosaic commandments and covenant. And so they're asking John, Hey, are you that guy, the one that Moses promised? And John says, No, I am not. I'm not that guy. I'm not the one with the authority to change the commandments and the Mosaic covenant. And of course, we know that the person they're looking for, the prophet, is Jesus himself. Jesus is the only one who could possibly fit this role of the prophet and have the authority to change the Mosaic covenants given to him by God himself. Verse 18 itself clearly shows that Jesus, as the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18, will be able to speak new commandments that must be obeyed. And so we have John still with this question hanging in the air. Okay, well, thank you very much, John, for explaining that you're not the Messiah You're not Elijah and you're not the prophet. So could you please tell us who you are? I mean, that sounds like a reasonable, fair question at this point. You're not that guy. You're not this guy. You're not that other guy. So then who are you? And John answers in kind of a strange way. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah, right? And so let's let's actually just take a look at what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five. So, yes, this is one of those times I want you to actually turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, just about any time I reference something in the book of Isaiah, I want you to turn there and read it anyway. Just so you know. So here we have in chapter thirty-nine the setup towards the coming Babylonian exile and occupation of the land of Israel, as Isaiah prophesies to the king of that day, to Hezekiah, of what is coming. And then on the heels of that prophetic word about the Babylonians coming and taking away everything in the temple and the occupation of Israel, he gives chapter 40. And I'm going to start at verse 1 because it helps us grasp the context of these verses that John references. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned The mouth of the Lord has spoken. When you read these passages, don't you start to understand why the people of Israel in that day and the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would reestablish ethnic and political Israel? And he would become a David-like king. He's going to kick the Romans out. Life's going to be so great. It'll be awesome and fantastic once again. How could you not get that hope? How could you not get that kind of sense of hope when you read these promises in the Old Testament of what he's going to do? It's perfectly, in my mind, it's just completely fair and reasonable to see how they get to that place. Unfortunately, what they had in mind for the Messiah's first coming is not what God had in mind for the first coming of the Messiah. Yet, nonetheless, as he is literally one day away from being revealed, John the Baptist is standing there in the wilderness, proclaiming to the people and making straight the highway, leveling the deep valleys, leveling the mountains and the hills so that they would have a flat, even plain for traveling of the coming Messiah. Now, of course, We understand that that's symbolic language. John doesn't physically go out there with a caterpillar, D9, and a bunch of dynamite and start leveling hills and valleys and filling in the valleys and making these straight, flat roads. That's not what John did. But what John did do in his proclamation of repentance and baptism was he prepared the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah because there are obstacles and barriers to receiving Jesus ones that we have erected within our own hearts. And those must be leveled. They must be flattened out those barriers for Jesus to come in. And so there's always a precursor to Jesus's arrival and that's true throughout church history. That every great awakening, what we would call a revival, is preceded by those who would openly make things better through the preaching of the word. And then Jesus and the Holy Spirit show up in a phenomenal way, just unimaginable to anyone in that time. And this is what John is doing. He's just preparing the people to receive their promised Messiah. So then that answer was kind of not exactly what they were looking for, these guys from Jerusalem. So in verses 24 through 28, they continue to ask him the question, trying to tease out a little more, right? Remember, one of their goals is to go back and report to the people in Jerusalem, is this guy one of these radicals that's going to cause a rebellion that we're going to have to deal with and the Romans are going to beat us all up over and they asked him again then why are you baptizing if you have neither the christ nor elijah nor the prophet really what they're getting to is they want to know what authority do you have to stand out here dressed like elijah and do what you are doing who do you think you are you've established you're not the christ or elijah or the prophet then on what authority do you stand out here and do this crazy stuff and cause trouble for us in jerusalem Right, that's the that's the unspoken part of their question. Who gave you the authority to make our lives unpleasant? And John responds to them. And in a typical Old Testament prophet style, John the Baptist answers them, their question with a riddle. One that does not even directly answer the question. Right, if you notice this, he doesn't answer the question on whose authority I'm doing this. His response is, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Okay, that's just not a very helpful answer, John. I mean, it sounds cute and prophetic, but that doesn't really help answer the question. Why can't you just answer the question, John? Because they're asking the wrong question. The authority that John has is evident from what he is doing and how he's doing it. And once again, we see this same storyline play out with Jesus and the religious leaders later on throughout the Gospel of John. By whose authority do you do what you are doing? And Jesus doesn't give them a straight-out answer. He shows them by what he does and what he says whose authority it is. And in the same way, John the Baptist gives them this same answer, one in which will be repeated so many times throughout the gospel of John as it was in the other synoptic gospels. But notice in all of this, it's easy to kind of overlook something important, which is John's humility, his answer of one whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. That's just stunning. That's just shocking because you got to understand at this moment John the Baptist is a superstar. He is like one of the biggest stars in the nation of Israel. Yes, he's a little crazy and he does some weird stuff but he's got great courage and boldness and he speaks like somebody who really is an Old Testament prophet in a time when they didn't experience that very often. And so he's In that moment, John is a superstar. He has superstar status. I mean, if this was modern day, he would have the 7,000 person church and, you know, and everybody would be carrying his sermons live on TV and radio programming. He'd have the whole big deal. John was a superstar. And in the midst of all that fame, if you want to use that word, he has a humility that is stunning and shocking. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal strap of the one who's coming. And then we get to the next day. All this happens on day one. If you want to think of it in terms of a sequential chronological order. Day one, these guys from Jerusalem show up and ask John, who is he? What are you doing? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Day two... He sees Jesus coming towards him and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a clear reference to the role of the Passover lamb and showing that Jesus's purpose, even at his revealing publicly, is to be of the sacrifice. The one whose blood takes away the sins of his people. Wait, John. Whoa, slow down, buddy. The Lamb of God, that's not the Messiah we're looking for. This one who bleeds so we are cleansed from our sins, that doesn't sound like the conquering, kick the Romans out kind of Messiah that we're looking for. He just doesn't fit our profile. You must be wrong. Clearly, you've been eating too many locusts. You must have got some bad locust over there on the other side of the Jordan. Because you can't be thinking clearly at this moment to think this way. It's just not possible. Nope, 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 nope. But that's exactly what God meant. It's exactly what God does. So what do you do? What do you do with those moments when your preconceived notions of who Jesus is... Do not match up to reality. What do you do? You have two choices. You either continue to hold on to your preconceived notions saying, this is who Jesus is. Or you realign who you think he is to match the reality of who he is. Yes, the conquering Messiah is the one coming back that we read about in Revelation But that's not the one that shows up there on the banks of the Jordan River that morning. The one who shows up is the one who takes away the sins of the world by shedding his own blood, by being the Passover lamb for his people. It's tempting to say to be the Passover lamb for the people of Israel, but that's incorrect. He's the Passover lamb for the whole world. I mean, this is even stunning. It's not just that John's disrupting our belief system about who Jesus is when he shows up. He's even being so audacious as to say that this is not even just for Israel. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You've got to be kidding me. No, he's not. And praise God that he's not. Because all of us in this room don't get to be in this room living under the blood of the lamb if he's just a savior for Israel. He has to be the savior for the whole world for us to be able to enjoy the benefits of his sacrificial life. And then John goes on to reveal more about this Jesus. In verses 30 through 34, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. (sighs) Okay. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend on him from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he sent me to baptize with water, said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend remains, and he is the baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay, thank you, John. But wait a minute. This doesn't... Oh, these prophets. Oh, my Lord. John, you were born before Jesus. I mean, it's just abundantly clear. I mean, there's just no way around it. Jesus wasn't before you. He was after you. Look, when you were born, your mom was visiting his mom and you were in your mom's belly when he was born. You are not before. He's not before you. He's after you. How, John Why? Can't you just keep the timeline straight here? Jesus was born after you were born. How can John the Baptist, with any sense of legitimacy and honesty, look at you and me and all the Jews gathered on the bank of the Jordan River that day and say he ranks before me because he was before me. How? The answer was given by Jesus himself. John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58. In his confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus existed in his fullness from the beginning of time, even before the beginning of time. That's how Jesus is before John, even though he was physically born after John. He was the great I am. He was there in the burning bush. He was there in the midst of the Red Sea when the waters parted. He was there when the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes with the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost. He was there when the really strong guy that killed a bunch of people with a donkey's jawbone Samson, he was there when Samson fought the Philistines with a donkey's jaw. He was there when David's hiding in the caves from Saul. He was there when David walks through the midst of Saul's camp and everybody's asleep and nobody wakes up got to be kidding me. Nobody wakes up and he's walking through. He's stepping over guys and they don't wake up. None of them. 150, 250 guys. He steps over them and then none of them wake up. He was there. He was there through all of it. He was there when Isaiah saw the image of God in heaven from Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus existed before the end. No one understood his role at the When Moses was standing in front of the great I am at the burning bush and hears God's name for the first time, I am who I am, no one understood that he was coming to be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God. But he was there nonetheless, and this is who he truly is. And the evidence of all that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead itself. His resurrection is the affirmation of God the Father that he is the promised Messiah and that his blood shed truly is the Lamb of God's blood shed for all of our sins. We can have absolute confidence in that. Paul makes it so abundantly clear in 2 Corinthians that even so that if we deny the resurrection, we are to be pitied more than any man on the planet. So while John baptizes with water, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We see that come to fruition in Acts chapter 2. And if and if John just stopped there, if he just stopped at verse 33, everything he said up into verse 33 would be shocking and stunning. I have belabored the point of how shocking and stunning his comments and words are. But he goes and does it even more, he even one-ups everything he said so far. With verse 34, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Are you kidding me, John? I mean, he's the Son of God too. He is the Son of God, even at his revelation as the Lamb of God, being revealed to the whole world through John's testimony. And in fact, Jesus' resurrection and everything that God does to affirm Jesus as his son and the Lamb of God and, and the chosen one, all of that, even in itself, all of that just doesn't affirm Jesus. It affirms John's testimony as true and accurate. What does the Old Testament say about the words of a prophet? If he's speaking on my behalf, then what he says will come true. And if it doesn't come true, he's not a real prophet. He's a false prophet. And because it did come true, Everything that Jesus does affirms that John was speaking the truth that day on the side of the Jordan River. The son of God. Are you kidding me? No, we're not kidding you. He's the lamb of God who is God's son. It's just not that he was chosen to be the sacrificial lamb. He is the son, the single heir chosen to be the sacrificial lamb. Do you start to understand John's humility that I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal strap? He is the great I am, and he's going to willingly shed his blood for us. No, we are not worthy to untie the sandal strap of one like that. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your love. How could you love us this much? We all know how bad we are. Like we cover it up and pretend sometimes, but deep down, we really know how bad we are. And you're still going to do this for us? So what? So what now? What now? I've got three things. Even now, these three things seem so small, so so inconsistent with the immensity of the Lamb of God being the Son of God. The first one is that you and I must apply the blood of the Lamb of God to the doorpost of our hearts. We must trust His saving work to be set free from our sins and His consequences. You understand this imagery of the blood of the Lamb in Egypt over their slave households being applied over the doorpost? Is the same imagery that we have to apply spiritually. We have to apply the blood of Jesus over the doorpost of our hearts so that we can be passed over from sin and death just as it was on that night in Goshen. Secondly, before Jesus comes, he always sends a witness to prepare the way. You are somebody's John the Baptist. Now that's a little bit freaky weird. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of being somebody's John the Baptist. Because what if I mess it up? What if I do it wrong? John the Baptist didn't do it perfect either. He stands here on the banks of the Jordan River that day and says, behold, the Lamb of God, who is the Son of God. And then a few months later, he's sitting in a jail cell and he actually sends messengers to Jesus. Are you really the one? I mean, I'm sitting here in jail and things aren't looking like you're going to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Did I make a mistake? John didn't do it perfect either. John struggled with making sense of the world around him and the reality of the world he was living in with what he was expecting. Just like we do. We expect certain things to happen as a result of Jesus's amazing work on the cross. And sometimes they don't turn out the way we thought. And that raises questions. Is this really real? Did I make this up? Did I mistake it? What's going on here? That's why we have to rely on the word. Jesus is who he says he is. Even if our preconceived notions of what he's going to do. Turn out to be wrong. Just like us being someone's John the Baptist. And then. We speak the word of truth with grace and mercy and love. But yet they still don't trust in Jesus. They still walk away. What? What did I do wrong? I don't know. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't John the Baptist's job to make everyone believe Jesus was the Lamb of God. It was John the Baptist's job to tell them He was the Lamb of God. That's all we are supposed to do. It's our job to tell them Jesus is the Savior of the world who takes away their sins by his blood. That's our requirement. To believe it, confess it, and proclaim it. The last what now is we must maintain this same humility as John the Baptist. We are witnesses to the Lamb of God, even though we are sons and daughters of God through Jesus. Do you understand this amazing work? It would be it would be amazing enough if Jesus just cleansed us from our sins with his blood. If he just did that, that would be enough. But that's not enough for him. That's not enough for our Father in heaven. He has to go the extra effort to adopt us as his sons and daughters that we become sons and daughters of God. Not equal to Jesus. That's where the humility comes in. We're not equal to Jesus, but we are still God's children. John the Apostle goes to straining the boat levels to make that clear in his first letter. That in his first letter, we are children of God. And he strains at the bolts to make that point. He makes it also in the gospel of John and he repeats it in 2nd and 3rd John. It's something that, here he is, right? Remember, this is John the Apostle, somewhere around 90 AD. Everybody, all the other apostles are dead. He's the last one alive. And the most important thing he wants everybody to grasp is that we are children of God. You've had a life, an entire life as a disciple of Jesus and the apostle, the last living apostle, And the most important thing he wants everybody to get at the end of his life is we are children of God. Breathe that in, my brothers and sisters. We are children of God because Jesus is our Savior. Breathe it in. Receive it, embrace it, and live it. I don't know how to live like a child of God. Well, me neither. I got a few things here in the scriptures that give me some guidance and directions on how to do that. But for the most part, I'm just figuring this out as I go along. Yes, we do have the Holy Spirit to give us guidance and direction. If we will listen. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's a challenge for me to listen to the Spirit and obey. In fact, that's even been my prayer recently with the Lord is just let me hear the Spirit and obey it perfectly. And then I realized, okay, that's dumb. Don't pray that. (laughs) No matter how perfectly you hear the Spirit, you're not going to obey it perfectly. Okay. Let me just hear the Spirit perfectly and obey pretty good. (laughs) That sounds, I know how that sounds, right? I just heard myself say it. Just let me obey pretty good. (laughs) Okay, so I'm not a perfect pastor. Oh, wait, you already knew that. You already were fully aware of that reality. I'm just the last one to the party on that subject. So with the humility that Jesus displays himself and that John the Baptist modeled for us, embrace our being children of God, but still exalt Christ, not ourselves. And that's what I'll leave you with, my brothers and sisters. With the humility of Christ, believe you are his children and exalt Jesus.